Growing up, my mom was really worried that my brother and I were going to get tattoos. Now, I am not telling you tattoos are good. I am not telling you tattoos are bad. I'm telling you my mom was worried that we would get one. And after we graduated high school and left our mom and dad's house, they became even more worried about the decisions that we would make around tattoos. To the point where any time you would go back to my parents' house to visit, as soon as we would get out of the car, my mom would run and greet you with one of those very intense yet super casual glances everywhere. Hey, nice to see you. As her eyes would like dart over every unexposed skin or exposed piece of skin, right? Like, oh, it really is nice to turn around, see you. I'm so happy you're home. My mom really didn't have to worry a lot about me because I don't like needles. And as soon as I learned that needles were involved with a tattoo, I was out. I'm good. My brother, though, was totally different. My brother, he really liked to mess with my mom, and that's fun. There was one particular summer where he came home, (laughs) and he decided that he was really going to give her a hard time. And so for the whole summer, he refused to take his shirt off when he went swimming. And he would always drop these random little clues. And so he would get on the phone with a friend and he would walk just close enough for my mom to hear and be like, yeah, I'm so glad we got those tattoos, man. Isn't that awesome? And then the very next day, he would make another call and to another friend, he'd be like, yeah, I can't decide when I'm going to get my first tattoo when I go back. I don't know. What do you think my first tattoo should be? He always liked to mess with her. There was one particular night that summer when the four of us were in the living room. My mom and my brother were on the couch, and my dad was on a chair, and I was in a chair, and we were just watching TV. And all of a sudden, I saw my brother fall asleep. Now, the corner of my eye, I could see my mom, and she couldn't help herself. She kind of bent down, getting closer to him. And I looked at her, and I shook my head. I was like, don't do it. Do not do it. Couldn't help herself. She bent down a little further. And as she's doing it, my dad looked at her and went, don't do it. Don't do it. Couldn't help herself. She bent down, and she took the edge of his T-shirt between her finger and her thumb. And just as she began to lift up the shirt, My brother's eyes opened and turned and saw her. It was a big moment. All of a sudden, all eyes are on my mom. All ears are on my mom. What is she going to do? It was a very big moment because my mom knew what she said next could possibly make or break a relationship. It's a big moment. Have you ever found yourself in a big moment where you know all eyes are on you? All ears are on you. It's a big moment, and sometimes you can feel it in your body that everybody is waiting for you to say something. 
That's where we find an apostle named Paul. Paul, in the book of Acts, he's walking around all these towns, and he's talking to people, and he's telling people what he thinks. Isn't that fun? He's walking around seeing people's behaviors, and Paul likes to give his opinions on what people are doing, unsolicited. He's like, oh, I see you're doing this, and let me tell you what I think about it. Oh, let me see what you should be doing, and let me tell you why. Paul is teaching people all about his faith, and he's trying to persuade people in these towns to talk to him about his faith. So as he's traveling, as he's teaching and talking and giving these opinions, the religious leaders find out. The philosophers find out. The theologians of the day, they find out. And they go to Paul and they say, okay, if you have something to say to us, you need to say it so we can all hear it. And so they say to Paul, we want you to go Walk up the steps to the Aragapas. Go to the capital of Greece. And if you have something to say, you stand on the top of those steps at the capital of Greece and you say it so we can all hear you at the same time. It's a big moment when we catch Paul. Because Paul knows in an instant all eyes are on him, all ears are on him. It's a huge moment. And what does he say? He gives a sermon summary. You should be so lucky just to have a summary, right? Instead, you have to hear the whole thing. Paul gives a sermon summary, and it starts like this. Athenians. I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through your city and I looked carefully at all the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Paul Smart, in his big moment, he lures in the crowd. He says, I'm one of you. I've been walking with you. I've been living with you. And I see all of the beautiful things that you have made. And I see these beautiful parts of your lives. He lures them in. And then he does something brilliant. I'm one of you, but however, I have seen on these beautiful things you've made. I've seen on your beautiful altars that you've made an inscription that says to an unknown God. And Paul says, I am here to put a name on your God. There's a name for the one true God. And I can tell you, I've seen the way you live. I see your worship and I see these beautiful things and I am here to name my faith and I am here to help you name your faith. 
And he goes on and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in shrines made by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. Paul says you're not understanding. There's nothing that you have done. There's nothing that you could do. There's nothing you could build to warrant God's love. It's unmerited. It's given to you freely. And so your whole existence is because God loved you and nothing else. And he goes on to say, from one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the world. And he allotted times of their existence. And he made boundaries of where they would live so that they would search for God and know God though indeed he is not far ever from any of us. Here he is on his big moment, on these steps of the Capitol. And Paul names his faith and says, this is the name of our one true God who loves you and will never be far from you. Don't tell my mom but I went to a tattoo parlor, but it was official business. The United Methodist, a few years ago, in all of the denomination's wisdom, decided to have a campaign. They decided that there were a bunch of people who were unchurched. I know that's shocking. They decided in all their wisdom and all their meetings that there were people who were unchurched and it was our job to bring them to church. In particular, they were very worried and concerned about people between the ages of 18 and 25. And so they decided that they were going to send young clergy out and interview these young and churched people and see why. Because nothing is cooler or hipper than a preacher. <laughs> I wish that weren't funny. Yeah. <laughs> so this was a national campaign. Reach the young people. So I had the privilege of being one of the young clergy selected. So I got a phone call and they said, Marion. On behalf of the United Methodist Church, we need you to go and interview young people who are unchurched. And I said, okay, I can do this. And they said, we are going to send you the approved list of questions to ask the unchurched. They said, we have spent a year in committee meetings, and we have decided that these are the only questions we need answered. Do not veer from the script. I'm like, okay. And I said, well, where am I going to find these young people who are unchurched? And they said, oh, we had a meeting about that too. We've decided to find the unchurched people 
You need to go to college campuses, coffee shops, and tattoo parlors. Thank you. So I get myself ready. I have my beautiful minister outfit on. I get my beautiful minister business briefcase because I'm cool like that. And I find the local tattoo parlor and I walk myself in and sure enough, I'm greeted with this wonderful young man who has tattoos from head to toe. And I say, oh, perfect. My name is Marion. I represent the entire church. Can I interview you? (laughs) We found a seat. He looked at me and I looked at him. I got out my list of approved United Methodist questions. And it was the first time I'd kind of really looked at these. And I looked at the first question and it said, do you prefer organ music or a guitar? (laughs) And then it said, do you like screens or no screens? And I'm looking at the rest of these questions and I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, yeah, I'm not gonna ask this. So I put my list aside And I looked at him and I said, why don't you just tell me why you don't go to church? The relief on this man's face. It was like this man had been waiting for somebody to ask him this question his entire life. And all of a sudden, he had a big moment. Here he was being asked by the whole church, why he didn't go. It was a moment for him. All eyes of the church were on him. All ears of the church were on him waiting to say, hear and see see what he was going to do next. It was a big moment. And guess what, friends? He took it. He said, let me tell you, I read the Bible every day. I pray every day. Let me tell you about my faith. And all of a sudden, this man begins to point to different parts of his body. And I realized for the first time that he is covered in nothing but religious symbols. And he begins to show me, this is what the serpent and the fruit mean to me. And he said, and this is what the star of David means. And he said, and this is the encounter that I had when I drew my own dove. And he said, and this is the face of the Mary, the mother, the Saint Mary that I believe watches over me. And he begins to tell me stories about the many times he has felt this protection. And then he points to his neck and he begins to share with me the meaning of the face of Jesus that he chose Here I am supposed to be naming my faith when he's naming his. And of course, I'm very embarrassed. And I begin to pack my things up. And he notices and he says, oh, I'm not done. And he keeps going. And he says, I have friends that go to church. I have friends that don't miss a Sunday. And let me tell you about them. I don't think they know who they worship. He said, God never asked for a building. God never asked for a house. The church made that happen, not God. And he's right. 
And he begins to say, if people knew who they really worshipped every Sunday, then they would not treat me the way they treat me. He said, as soon as I walk out of the doors of this store, no one wants to have a relationship with me if they go to church. All my friends tell me what's wrong with me and what I've done incorrectly. He said, it's almost as if on their altar it writes to an unknown God. Because if they worshipped the same God that I worshipped in scripture, they would not judge me this way. And he says, every Sunday I come right here to my store. This is my church. This is my community. And this is where people come to pray together. And we talk about things and we help one another. He said, this is my village. But people on the outside, I don't recognize their altars and places of worship, just as they don't recognize mine. Obviously, I am speechless at this moment. And I begin to think he's right. I mean, I didn't even ask him if he went to church. I made a lot of assumptions. And then, for the very first time, but not the last, I realize the church is fighting about the wrong thing. And he must have seen all this on my face because he said, okay, okay. I've told you about mine. Tell me, what's your favorite symbol of your faith? Well, here it is. I represent the entire church universal. This is my big moment. All eyes are on me. All ears are on me. Whatever I say next, I can undo all the wrongs of the last 2,000 years of church, right? It's a great big moment for me. And so immediately I start thinking about all these images. These images are just running through my mind like, nope, not that one, not that one, not that one. It's almost like a little old-fashioned Rolodex, you know, scripture, picture, scripture. No, no, no. And finally, I just look at him and I tell him the truth. Imagine. And I said, you know what? My favorite symbol is the communion table. It always has been. And I launch into a great little sermon summary. And I start to tell him about how no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what kind of day or week or month or year you've had, the most consistent thing in our faith is the communion table. And there's something comforting about that for me. And I say, in the, every time you go to the communion table, there's a memory. The table holds memory. And so all the people that you've ever had communion with, even if they have died, they are still present there. It's a connection. And I start to talk about the grace and the love and the forgiveness and the consistency and just the comfort of the table. And I said, you know what, too? There is always room for one more. He looks right at me and he says, great. Roll up your sleeves. The first one's on the house. <laughs> you know what I say? I can't. My mom won't let me. <laughs> this 
tattoo artist put into a very, very modern context the exact words of Acts of Paul. And so the question remains, whose name is on your worship? Whose name, Chapel Roswell, is on our worship today? Whose name is on our lives? Whose name would somebody see in our conversations and in our actions and our judgment or not judgment? Whose name is truly on the way we live? Because there are all kinds of invisible images out there. Whose hand are you holding? What is your favorite color? And what side are you really on? Because all of those have names on them. And so the question remains, Chapel Roswell, whose name is on our faith? And typically what I have learned is the people that you disagree with the most there's always one more place at the table. So here's my mom. Finger and thumb right here with that T-shirt. All eyes are on her. It's a big moment. And you know what she says? She drops it and she says, you know what? It doesn't really matter. I love you. I'm going to read to you the entire passage straight from Acts. And in case you're wondering, it comes from Acts 17, verses 22 through 28. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely spiritual you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. And what therefore you worship as unknown, this I will proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and things. From one ancestor he made all people to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps fumble about for God and find God. Though indeed, God is never far from any of us. For in God we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. For we too are his offspring. Amen. We have an opportunity now to come to this symbol, to come to this table and take these outward signs of an inward grace that lets us know that we all have the same grace and love of God equally. And so I invite you to hear the words of the old, old church liturgy called the Great Thanksgiving. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took the bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. So do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks to you, gave it to the disciples and said, drink from this, all of you, 
For this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So drink it as often as you will in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a living and holy sacrifice in union with Christ offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And so pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. And by your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at that heavenly banquet. Lord, indeed, we come to you as one people with all of our things in our brains, all of the concerns and joys in our hearts, all of the events and activities and worries. We bring it all to you as one. Because we know, Lord, in a true community, when one hurts, we all hurt. And when one celebrate, we all celebrate. And so we bring it to you now. And we say together the words of your son, the Lord's prayer that you taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. 